Jesus heals an official's son. After the two days, Jesus left for Galilee. He himself had pointed out that a prophet is not respected in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the people living there welcomed him. They had seen everything he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. That was because they had also been there. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee. Cana is where he had turned the water into wine. A royal official there was there. His son was sick in bed at Capernaum. The official heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, so he went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son. The boy was close to death. Jesus told him, you people will never believe unless you see signs and wonders. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said, and so he left. While he was still on his way home, his slaves met him. They gave him the news that his boy was living. He asked what time his son got better. They said to him, Yesterday at one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized what had happened. This was the exact time that Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole family became believers. This was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. Good job. Thanks, Grace. Thanks, Phil. Well, again, just such a warm welcome to those who are visiting with us today. As Phil alluded to so wonderfully in his prayer, in 2019, our theme is fixed on Jesus. We're taking an entire year uh, to really focus our attention on the person of Jesus and examine various aspects of his life, his teaching, and his ministry. And the goal of this is to grow as a people, uh, more in love with Jesus, but also more enabled to share Jesus with others. And of course, as believers, we should be fixed and focused on Jesus all the time, right throughout our lives. The, the kind of key passage that our theme is, is anchored in is this wonderful passage in Hebrews 12, a favourite of mine, particularly this kind of, technically, it would be 1A, oh, sorry, 1B, 2A. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Our faith originates in Jesus. Our faith all throughout life is in Jesus, and our fulfillment of faith is found in the presence of Jesus. Uh, In term one, we're considering the miracles of Jesus. And last Sunday, we began by looking at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned the water into wine in John chapter 2. Today, we're in John chapter 4. The miracles were such an important part of the life and the ministry of Jesus. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, when we see Peter preaching the gospel, he refers to the miracles of Jesus as actually being that which accredited Jesus as being divine, being sent by God. So his miracles are very important. It's helpful for us to understand what the purpose uh, of the miracles of Jesus were. What did they mean back then? But also, what do they mean for us today as we as modern readers come to the text? The purpose of miracles, um, there there are numerous purposes, but here are at least four purposes as to why. And there are miracles, obviously, not just in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. But we see that 
New, in the New Testament particularly, the miracles of Jesus authenticate the message of the gospel. So Jesus was very much both a show and a tell kind of guy. I'm not just going to tell you about the kingdom of God. I'm going to show you what the kingdom of God looks like. I'm going to give you a window into what this kingdom is like. Uh, miracles demonstrate that God has sovereign control over all nat- nature and over all creation. Uh, miracles bring glory to God, particularly when the person who gave the miracle says, don't worship me, like worship the Father. And we see that right throughout the New Testament, particularly in the early church. The credit kept going back to God the Father, and miracles are designed to glorify God. Finally, the miracles give evidence that God is real. I suppose it's worth asking the question, is it rational to believe in miracles? Now, as someone who's grown up in the church, grown up always believing and accepting the Word of God as truth, this isn't particularly a question that I've personally had to wrestle with. I read the miracles in Scripture and I believe them and I accept them because I believe that there is a God. But that's not how everyone thinks or operates. And it really is not so much a historical question in terms of did these miracles actually happen, rather it is a philosophical question of our understanding of the laws of nature. It's kind of a question between naturalism and theism. So if, if you hold to a worldview of naturalism, then that explains that we can only understand the world, the world around us through observable physical forces of nature. And if, if our understanding of, or our worldview is limited to that, then a miracle cannot happen because a miracle acts outside of the observable laws of nature. However, if we have a belief in a higher power, in a God, in a divine creator, a divine creator who can at times step in to creation and do something that extends beyond the normal laws of nature, then it's not irrational to believe in miracles. Can miracles still happen today? We read about miracles happening in the Old Testament. We read about miracles happening in the New Testament. Do miracles still happen today? Well, I believe they do. I cannot personally testify to experiencing a miracle that I'm aware of, although there are probably all kinds of occasions in my life where God has intervened without my knowing and being aware of God's work in my life. I took the boys to Copa on Monday afternoon and the water was really choppy. And I got to the point where I've never been in this situation out before. I was out with Andrew and he kept drifting. He kept drifting. I got to a point where I was losing control and he was going out further and I almost put my hand out for the lifeguard. Uh, Thankfully, we got back in okay. Now, he was completely unaware of what was going on. Inside, I, I was panicking. On the outside, I was quite calm. But it reminded me the fact that there are situations in our lives where God is there in control, caring for us, protecting us, we're unaware. So there could have been miracles that have happened in my life, in your life, you may not necessarily be aware of, but God in his goodness is watching over 
you. The scriptures teach us that very fact. However, I have heard people give personal witness and testimony to experiencing miracles, particularly people might speak of medical miracles where some kind of intervention has occurred that medical staff cannot give a reason for. And, uh, and, and people have credited that to the miracle, the, the power of prayer and the miracles of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So what we read of Jesus in the scriptures is exactly the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. However, the purpose of the miracles, when we come to the scriptures today, should we come to, when, when we're faced with a situation Should we come to God and pray for a miracle? Yes, 100% we should. There's nothing wrong with that, and the Bible encourages us to do so. I'm thinking of the letter of James, for example, where when those who are sick are invited to come to the elders to be anointed with oil and to pray for healing. So absolutely, the New Testament does encourage us to seek God for healing or to seek God for a miracle. But I do take case with where people will say, I do take a point where people will say, well, because it happened there, then it's definitely going to happen here. We need to understand what the purpose of the miracles are all about for us now, as well as what they're all about for people back then. Ultimately, the purpose of the miracles is not actually about the individual who experiences the miracle. That's really important. But what's happening with these miracles, as I mentioned a moment ago, is these miracles are giving windows into the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there is no brokenness. In the kingdom of God, there is no blindness. In the kingdom of God, there is no hunger. In the kingdom of God, at a wedding banquet, the wine does not run out. The kingdom of God. And so when we read the miracles... What we, what we as a church and what we as a people of God see that as followers of Jesus, we hope for and we proclaim a kingdom where everything that is broken is restored and made whole. That is the primary reason and purpose for the miracles. Even when Jesus was doing the healings and teachings, he was showing what the kingdom of God looked like. People still continue to get sick and die to this day. And all those who experienced healing and miracles in the Bible eventually passed away. But there will come a day when everything is restored, as we sang in that beautiful song, when my race is complete and we will forever live in the reality of that kingdom. When God chooses to heal someone or a miracle happens now, again, it is to glorify God And it is to give insight into what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God is a glorious place. And the kingdom of God is how we as his people are supposed to function. We're supposed to function according to the kingdom of God. And the the kingdom of God has a king. And his name is Jesus. And so as followers of Jesus, we, we put his ways first and we follow after his kingdom. Now, we find ourselves in the Gospel of John. Um, Over this year, we'll be looking at all four Gospels uh, and and exploring different passages in those Gospels. Uh, Today, we're in John as we were last week. John is unique compared to the other Gospels, and there's some things that would be helpful for us to understand about John before we take a look at today's particular passage, of course, which is in John. Just some simple things, quick things about John's Gospel. It is different to the 
synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very different. It is likely the gospel that was written last. It is also likely that John had uh, or was at least aware of a lot of the material that had been in circulation with those synoptic gospels. Um, The synoptic gospels are primarily concerned more so with the events of Jesus' life. This is kind of what Jesus did and this is what happened. John, however, is far more theological. Okay, John is more concerned about the meaning of those events. You think about the opening of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. A deeply theological statement about who Jesus is. Jesus is God. I mentioned last Sunday that John has this really high Christology right from the very beginning, the first verse, highlighting that Jesus was right there at the beginning of creation, identifying Jesus with Genesis chapter 1, being there at creation, the Word being God. Uh, John is not written in chronological order. He, He, again, because he's writing more about the meaning, sometimes he will place particular events to assist with the theology of what he is teaching. John also contains more dialogue than any other gospel, both dialogue that Jesus experiences with other people. For example, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, there's quite a lengthy dialogue with, uh, with the woman there. Uh, but also in, in John, sort of the heart of John's gospel, the upper room discourse, we have this lengthy discourse with Jesus and his disciples, but also this whole chapter in 17 devoted to prayer, where we get to hear Jesus praying to the Father. So lots of dialogue. And finally, another thing for us to be aware of is in John's gospel, there are kind of these seven signs. John doesn't refer to them as miracles. He refers to them as signs. Last week, we saw the first sign. Today, we see the second sign. Each of these signs teaches us something really significant about Jesus, about his power, about his authority. John also, unlike any other gospel writer, I suppose Luke does as well to an extent, but John concretely gives us, the reader, his purpose for writing. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In a sense, when we come to John's gospel, whatever we read, we have to read through this lens. Like, what does this teach us about belief and what does this teach us about life? That's John's goal as the author of this amazing gospel is to help us, the listener, experience belief and, as a result, life. And so even as we come to today's text, which is all about belief and life, it's really helpful for us to just be aware of John's primary purpose in what he has compiled through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his gospel. So we come to John 4, 43 to 54. Jesus heals an official son. And it's important for us, again, to be mindful of the context. If you have a Bible with you, it would be helpful to open up to John chapter 4 and to see, again, where John has placed this particular story. And Jesus, we learn in chapter 2, had been in Judea, which is in Jerusalem. He'd been there for the Jewish Passover festival. And we read um, at the very beginning of chapter 4 that Jesus is about to leave Judea and head to Galilee. 
He's been at the Passover festival. He's going back to Galilee, where he was before at the wedding of Cana. So he's on a journey. He's on a journey from Judea to uh, Galilee. And in, right smack bang in the middle of those two places is Samaria. And that's where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And I'm not going to go into that particular story this morning. Except to say that the way that John finishes the story of the woman at the well is really fascinating. And again, I think we need to be aware of this as we enter into the, the story about Jesus healing the official son. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Remember John's purposes, belief and life. Now these people are Samaritans. And again, without going into the context, Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. And yet Jesus was warmly welcomed and received by the Samaritans. And because of this woman's powerful testimony, and indeed because Jesus stayed with them for two days, and obviously spoke many wonderful words about the kingdom of God, we see that many people became believers. This is wonderful. They believed, in a sense, without seeing any miracles. But when we come to today's passage, we also see another crowd who, in a sense, will only believe if they see miracles. And John is contrasting the crowds with the individual, the royal official. This passage that we come to in John 4 is very much about believing without seeing. And we know from the account that Jesus has with Thomas at the end of his gospel that those who believe without seeing are blessed. Now, it's not to say that if you believe because you've seen, you won't be blessed and you won't become part of God's kingdom. But Jesus is saying there is actually a special blessing for those who can put their faith and trust in Jesus first and foremost as Messiah rather than miracle worker. Again, another contrast that John is making in today's passage. Jesus the miracle worker versus Jesus the Messiah. Okay, so what we're going to do, I'm not going to take a lot of time. We'll walk through the passage. I'll just try and explain it as best I can, and then I have some brief reflections at the end. John, 40, John 4, 43 to 45. After two days he left for Galilee. Remember, we just saw um, in the, the other story that Jesus had said that he would stay in Samaria for two days. So he's now left. He's on his way to Galilee from Samaria. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. Now, it's interesting that that is in brackets. What I've read about this is that it's not that necessarily Jesus spoke those words between Samaria and Galilee. Um, and it's not necessarily that Jesus is speaking these words about himself. He, he is, but he's probably speaking them more widely about prophets. That, in a sense, 
it's good for prophets to be constantly on the move <laughs> because after a while they don't necessarily become very welcomed. Um, so it, th- there is that to say, but there is also an acknowledgement that Jesus is returning to his home country and there is an, as the reader, certainly there is an anticipation that Jesus won't be welcomed. But interestingly, again, the reading of the text in verse 45 says that when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And there's a reason that they do that, because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. See, in John 2, 23, which normally if you're reading the gospel through chronologically, we would have already been aware of this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. So what John is communicating to us here as the reader is that, yes, Jesus now has a group of followers, a group of believers, if you will, but the primary reason why they've become followers or believers is because they've experienced Jesus, the miracle worker, as opposed to Jesus the Messiah. The difference being, the miracle worker, I can see it. Okay, I can believe it. In a sense, I'm still operating um, in this natural law, like I can see that. Whereas if I believe in Jesus as Messiah without any particular evidence, then I'm really putting my faith outside of what I see as the observable laws of reality. Does that make sense? It's the difference here. Verse 46 to 47, once more he visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. What John is doing here again by specifically mentioning that is for us the reader, he wants us to remember that miracle. John in chapter, in, in, when John um, speaks about the water in the wine, he specifically names it the first sign. And this second sign, he also says this is the second sign. After that, he stops counting. There are seven signs in total, but there are only two that John numbers. So clearly, he wants us to think about sign number one and its connection to sign number two. But at any rate, Jesus is back in Cana, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. I always find it helpful thinking about the geography and what kind of distance we're talking. So the distance from Galilee uh, to Capernaum in kilometres is around 32 kilometres. And that's about the distance from Gosford to Norahead. And that's a fair distance, particularly if you're travelling by foot, um, which is likely the way that this person travelled. And again, it just gives us the sense of, wow, that's, that's really intentional. That's not just, you know, kind of Aaron a Baptist church to Aaron a fair. That's like a significant amount of time that I'm going to commit to to get to Jesus. And so what we see with this royal official is that there was intention. Like he sought Jesus out. Also, we see here that he is an official. He probably worked for Herod of Antipas. The fact that he is an official, though, would mean that he was a person of means. We don't know exactly what kind of illness or sickness the son or the boy had. Uh, further on, it will refer to a fever. But it also, the text refers to the fact that he was close to death. The child could have been sick for some time. 
We don't know. But given the official was a man or a person of means, it is likely that a lot of other um, roads, if you like, have been exhausted. Maybe he's tried to get other medical intervention and help, tried other things, but nothing has come close to healing the son, and now this man finds himself at a point of desperation. He hears about Jesus, that Jesus can work a miracle, and he has a belief that Jesus could, in fact, work a miracle for his son. And so he makes an intentional journey to Jesus. What I love about this, too, is that he took the time to go and find Jesus out, and then the word there says he begged with Jesus to come back and heal his son. This is a beautiful picture of prayer. This man has gone to a place of prayer. He has faced a crisis, and that crisis has turned him to the one person he knows can change the situation. Prayer at times will require time. It will require intention and commitment and persistence. And we see those qualities in this father. Now, Jesus then makes a remark, which in a sense is spoken, it would seem, to the royal official or the father, but it is also something that is spoken more generically of the Galileans. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. It, I don't know about you, but it, it sort of reads to me as if Je- the man has just completely disregarded what Jesus has said, not paying any attention to it. And what we see is that this man is already exercising a faith. You know, he's kind of moved past Jesus' miracle worker to Jesus' Messiah. He knows that Jesus can heal his son. He has faith that Jesus can heal his son. And indeed, that is what is going to happen. Go! Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. It's really quite remarkable. Up to this point, you know, the man went all the way to find Jesus and all along it was to bring Jesus back. And when he pleaded, when he begged with Jesus, the request was not, could you heal my son from a distance? The request was, could you come? I want you to physically see my son and heal him there. And just at the word that Jesus speaks, the man trusts, he has faith that what Jesus says, Jesus will do. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever Left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. A wonderful thing about this story to note is here is an example of the word of Jesus becoming flesh. The word of Jesus becoming flesh. Jesus speaks healing from a distance and this person is healed, receives healing. This is not the first or this is not the only um, healing from a distance that we see of Jesus in the Gospels. There are other accounts. There's the account of the Roman or the royal official again or the centurion um, who has a slave and the elders of the slave 
um, beg on Jesus, beg on the centurion's behalf. And Jesus heals from a distance, and the centurion takes the word of Jesus, again, similar to this person, this man. There's also the Phoenician woman. Jesus heals her daughter um, from a distance. So it's not the only time in Scripture where Jesus heals from a distance. But I think for John, again, the power of Jesus' word and the power of Jesus' spoken word becoming flesh, in a sense, becoming life. And there we see John toying with the life and the belief. What does this story teach us about Jesus? Well, of course it teaches us a number of things. But firstly, it teaches us that Jesus is not restricted to any kind of physical distance. Jesus can speak a word and stuff happens. Come back to Genesis 1 with me. This is the writer of John. In the beginning was God. God speaks creation into being. So what we learn about Jesus, of course, from John the writer, is that Jesus is God. He speaks and amazing stuff happens. The power of Jesus' word. Jesus is not restricted to time or place. We also see with Jesus that he has power over physical life. Now, at this point, we're in the back end of John chapter 4. But it's, again, important for us to understand what has proceeded up to this moment. Um, we've had the wedding at Cana, where that was the first sign. And we see uh, Jesus exercising power over physical life. He turns the water into wine. We spoke about that being a sign of abundance. I've come that they might have life and life to the full. Jesus has power to give life now in the physical realm in abundance. In John chapter 3, we haven't looked at this, but Jesus encounters Nicodemus. And it is in that conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus that one of the most famous Bible verses of all time comes from. Um, who can tell me what John 3.16 says? Bit of a mumble. Um, what we know from John 3.16 is that Jesus has the power to give eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus has power to give um, abundant life here now. Jesus has power to give eternal life. And then in John chapter 4, Jesus has power to restore physical life, bring healing and bring renewal. Jesus has kind of power over all of these different realms. This is what John 4 teaches us about Jesus in this section. What does this story teach us about faith? Admittedly, it is only a very short story. It's a short text. But there's actually a real journey of faith that takes place in the royal official in this story. And it teaches us something of the journey of faith. The royal official comes to Jesus. He, he's, he's in a crisis situation. We could call it crisis faith. Sometimes faith is not catalyzed in people until a crisis situation happens. They're at the end of their rope, and that's what takes them to God. We see that here. We see the journey of faith beginning with a crisis. Through that crisis, we see the confidence that this man embodies as he takes Jesus at his word. Jesus speaks the word, go, your son will be healed. And the man doesn't, again, plead with Jesus to come with him. He accepts the word of Jesus. And we see the confidence of his faith. Then when the man meets 
with the servants and the miracle is confirmed, his confident faith becomes confirmed faith. And then when the man goes home and his whole household believes, his confirmed faith becomes contagious faith. And now his entire household believes. Now, it's only a short text, but this man has gone from crisis faith to contagious faith. I wonder where you're at in your journey of faith. Of course, the biblical vision for all God's people is to be here, is to have faith that is contagious, where households believe. And I mean, the household for that particular man could have been a significantly large household. We, we know that he had servants. He may have had other children. Um, but it was no small thing for an entire household. We certainly see that, again, through the New Testament. And it does speak of particularly the role of the, the man or the head of the house in that context. Their faith would become, indeed, the whole family and the whole household's faith. Uh, but it's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of the contagious faith that a person has. So the journey of faith. Faith, my friends, is a journey. It's okay wherever you find yourself at, but there is a journey to be taken. And I encourage you to take that journey and to keep moving towards contagious faith. You know, many of us might find ourselves at that confident faith, even that confirmed faith. We've had experiences that have confirmed for us 100% faith is real. But then the next step, and the step that so many of us struggle to make, I think, is the contagious faith, where our faith becomes so real and evident in our lives that we just can't help but share it with others. That is my vision and heart for this series, that we would become so in awe and so aware of the person and the presence and the power of Jesus that our eyes would be so fixed on him that we couldn't just help talk about it and our faith in him would be contagious what does this story teach us about belief this story teaches us that belief leads to life of course that's what we learn from john 3:16, and of course that's the very purpose of john's writing this gospel the purpose is that you would believe and as a result of believing you're going to experience the life that jesus offers and it's a wonderful life it is a life of abundance. It is a life of eternal, um, eternal presence with God the Father. We're not eternally separated. We are eternally with the Father. And it is also a life where God, has, where God can intervene physically in our lives and bring healing and bring restoration. It might be physically, it might be mentally, but God can and does bring healing and wholeness. This is what belief does when it is genuine. It brings life. At its core, this story is about a desperate father, a desperate parent, a terribly sick, ailing child, and a compassionate saviour. And the ministry that is offered through Erin Baptist Preschool Long Day Care Centre is helping parents who are in need of care who are in need, loving and caring for their children and taking them to Jesus and introducing them to the compassionate, loving Saviour that He is. That's what this morning's about. 
And when we pray for these stuff, it's not just to tick a box. It's because what's happening in that center is so important and is so significant and fits the biblical vision of what it means to be the people of God. So for all those who are part of our preschool and long daycare center, we honor you. Uh, We pray God's blessing upon you as you seek to take children to Jesus and that they might encounter him and experience the life changing difference that he can make in their lives. We pray too that that would extend to the rest of their family, that the faith would go beyond confident faith, beyond confirmed faith, to contagious faith. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much this morning for the opportunity to explore this story in John's Gospel. It speaks to us about the life-changing difference that you can make through spoken word. Well, we thank you for the power of your word, that your word continues to change hearts and lives. And Father, for each of us, wherever we find ourselves on the journey of faith, may we continue to place our trust and our faith in you, And may that faith continue to find confidence and confirmation. But Lord, may it grow to the point where it becomes contagious. We cannot but help share it with others. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done. And I pray that we might be people who live the ways of Jesus that we would see your kingdom being extended both here in Erinor on the central coast in Australia and indeed in the world. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.